0: You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Amen. You can be seated. My name is Elizabeth Hayes. I'm glad to be with you this morning. as everybody's getting seated and settled, I want to start with a question. So raise your hand if you have ever been on Three Chopped Road. I think everyone. Now keep your hand raised if you know how Three Chopped Road got its name. Ooh, a few people, even Chris knows. <laughs> um, so the story goes, I just heard the story this week actually, I'm not a Richmond native, but um, the story goes that Three Chopped Road was originally an ancient hunting trail used by Native Americans. And then when the settlers turned it into a road, they used this mark. I know this picture is kind of hard to see, this mark to identify the road. So this is a really old picture, but it's a tree trunk with three horizontal. Chops in the tree. And that was the trail marker for Three Chopped Road, which is how it got its name. Actually, Rusty Greg told me this little bit of history, and he told me that he knows of somebody, maybe you guys know of somebody too, who has a really old tree in their yard that still has these three chops, which I think is pretty cool. So if you were with us last week, then you know that we're in a new sermon series called Pointing to the Promise. And in this sermon series, we are talking about how the Old Testament is full of trail markers, just like this one on Three Chapter Road. And each of these trail markers showed the people of God at the time, as well as us, as we're reading scripture all these years later, that we are still heading in the right direction. Because the Bible isn't just a collection of different stories It's more like a journey. The people of God are on a journey towards a specific destination with a specific purpose. And the entire Old Testament, the entire Bible is pointing towards one destination. That is the coming of the kingdom of God on earth and the arrival of its king, Jesus Christ. So today we're going to be looking at a little part of the story of Jacob in Genesis. Our reading is going to come from Genesis 32, verses 22 to 32. So if you have a Bible today, I'd encourage you to open it, Genesis 32. And actually, all throughout this series that we're going to be in this summer, we're going to be looking at just like little bits of really big stories. So the story of Jacob is like many, many chapters long, and we're just looking at 10 little verses of it. So we're going to do our best to summarize the stories and situate us but it might be especially helpful to bring your Bible this summer so that you can flip a few pages forward or back to see where exactly we are in the story. So let me pray, and then I will read our scripture for today. Gracious God, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds by the power of the Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, that we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two slave women, and his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, along with his possessions. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. Then he said to Jacob, Let me go for its daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. Jacob, he replied. Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel because you've struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Jacob then named the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face, he said, yet my life has been spared. The sun shone on him as he passed by Peniel, limping because of his hip. That's why still today, the Israelites don't eat the thigh muscle that's at the hip socket because he struck Jacob's hip socket at the thigh muscle. This is the word of the Lord. So, we've just dropped in on this really mysterious episode in the middle of Jacob's life. And I want to take a second to remind us how he got here, how he got into this strange situation. So Jacob's whole life was defined by wrestling. Even before he was born, his mom reported that He and his twin brother Esau were wrestling inside her womb. And then he came out of the womb grabbing onto his brother's heel. And from that point on, he just never stops hustling. He is constantly trying to work the system, constantly trying to find a shortcut. He is wheeling and dealing and cheating and stealing his way to get what he wants. He is bound and determined that if he should get anything good in life, and he definitely wants good things out of life, then it is up to him to grasp it. So Jacob reminds me of one of the best hustlers in cinematic history, and that is Frank Abignale Jr. from Catch Me If You Can, who remembers that movie? If you remember that movie, you're really old because that movie is over 20 years old. Can you believe it? So, Leonardo DiCaprio's character has the same mindset as Jacob. He believes if anything good is going to come his way, then it is up to him to get it for himself. So, Frank, in the movie, before his 18th birthday, he has already impersonated a lawyer, a doctor, and a major airline pilot. And he uses those impersonating those characters to... Um, forge checks and get loans that he wouldn't have otherwise been able to get. And so he's racking up the money, but he is always on the run. He's always one step ahead of the law. He's always scrambling to keep the consequences of his actions from catching up to him, just like Jacob. So when we meet Jacob in our story today, as a result of his cheating, he has basically been on the run for 20 years you see, he tricked his brother Esau out of his inheritance, and then he tricked his father Isaac out of Esau's blessing. And Esau was so furious with Jacob that he threatened to kill him. And so, Isaac had to flee. Jacob had to flee and live near his uncle Laban. So while Isaac, while goodness, while Jacob was living uh, near Laban, he made a family. He settled down. He got established, and. He ended up getting very wealthy, to no one's surprise, by cheating Laban. And so now about 20 years later, his uncle has found out that he's been cheating him all this time, and he gets furious. So Jacob has to flee again. So in our passage today, Jacob finds himself between a rock and a hard place, but it's this crazy mess of his own making, Jacob has to flee his uncle because he cheated him, and now his uncle wants to kill him. But he's afraid to go back home because he had cheated his brother, who also wants to kill him. So, you know, Jacob starts heading home because he doesn't know where else he's going to go. And he does what he does best. He starts to schmooze. So Jacob sends a ton of lavish gifts. I mean, it's like an extraordinary amount of gifts ahead of him to Esau to grease the wheels, butter him up, let him know that he's on his way. And he sends a messenger with these gifts. But when the messenger returns, he comes with bad news. He says, hey, Esau is coming to meet you and he has 400 men. So this is the climax of Jacob's story. This is the moment when his hustling has finally caught up with him. He has outrun the law his whole life. He's outrun trouble his whole life. But finally, in this moment, he knows he's going to have to confront it. So he makes one final scramble. He sends his family and his possessions ahead of him in two different camps, and he stays back alone, perhaps on what he thinks to be his final night. Because surely when Esau catches him with these 400 men, he's a dead man it's really a sobering moment for a man who has been one step ahead for his entire life, right? And that's the setting of our story today. So we're going to explore this story from three different vantage points. We're going to talk about the signpost, the destination, and following the trail. So the signpost, the destination, and following the trail. First, the signpost. You know, there are a lot of signs in this story of Jacob. I think it's it's a really interesting story. There are a lot of different ways that you can explore it. So we could talk about how God choosing Jacob, the younger brother, to carry out his blessing rather than the older brother is a sign of the upside-down kingdom, how God chooses the weaker instead of the stronger. We could talk about how this mystery man's mercy that he shows to Jacob is a sign of the mercy that Christ shows us in sparing us. And all of those are interesting things that we could talk about in other sermons. But I want to today to focus on the sign of God's presence. I want to focus on the physical appearance of God in the form of the man who wrestles with Jacob. You see, Jacob has shown very little faith in his life, as far as we can tell, really. He is bound and determined to make his own way in the world. And, you know, God doesn't really factor into the equation. It's Jacob against the world in his mind. And if he's going to get anything good out of life, he's going to have to get it for himself. Maybe you don't see yourself in Frank Abagnale. Maybe you don't see yourself in Jacob. Um, But I want to contend that this impulse to grasp our own blessing This desire to bless ourselves is actually a theme throughout the entire Bible, throughout the entire story of Israel and the church, because it is the root of all human sin. So consider this How would you fill in the blank? If I can just blank, then I can rest. If I can just blank, then I will be fulfilled. If I can just blank, then I'll be happy. How would you fill in the blank? Maybe you would say, if I can just get a job or get out of debt or get a promotion. Maybe you'd say, if I can just hear my dad or my spouse say, good job, you've done great. If I could just get married, if I could just get into that school that I want to get into, if my kid can just get into a good school, if my kids just turn out okay, then I can rest. And you know what? Not a single one of these things is a bad thing to desire. They're all good things to desire, actually. And, and neither was it wrong for Jacob to desire his father's blessing or his wife, Rebecca, or even for him to desire wealth and prosperity. The trouble comes when, like Frank Avignale or Jacob, We impatiently, desperately wrestle for that blessing instead of looking to God for it. So, Jacob is like this glaring anti hero at this point in the story. I think that if he was going to attend the Eras tour, he'd be wearing a shirt that said, It's me. And yet, shockingly, and to no credit to Jacob himself, Jacob's story is full of God. So who has ever been in a play or a ballet or a musical or something where you've been on a stage? Raise your hand. So if you have been in a stage production of any kind, then you know that onstage and backstage are two very different kinds of places, aren't they? What happens on stage, it's choreographed, it's costumed, it's rehearsed. Backstage, there might be some sort of costume, but it's different, everyone's wearing black. And things might be messy and chaotic and people are moving props around and sceneries and setting everything up so that the play can happen. Now, I want you to imagine that you are watching a play and all of a sudden in the middle of a scene, that curtain that separates the stage from backstage opens up a few feet, you would get a glimpse of the chaos and the scurrying that's happening behind the stage, right? Backstage. I think that that's something like what happens over and over again in Jacob's story, and something like what happens in this story that we read today. So, repeatedly, God pulls back the curtain to show Jacob what's happening behind the scenes, backstage, in God's space, in heaven. One example of this in Jacob's life is back when Jacob was originally fleeing Esau when he was heading to his cousin or his uncle Laban, um, he had a dream in which God appeared to him and he showed him this stairway or um, escalator, right? Where people, uh, angels were coming and going from earth to heaven, uh, sometimes we call this image Jacob's ladder. And um, later, as Jacob is fleeing from Laban, right before our reading today, uh, even though Esau had threatened to kill him, uh, God appears to him and, and these angels show him that he really should go back home to Esau. And then here again in our passage from today, after Jacob has sent his family ahead, he sits alone contemplating what he believes to be the end of his life, it happens again. God shows up and he brings the backstage into the foreground. So Jacob meets this mysterious man with whom he wrestles all night. And I mean like physically wrestle, not like emotionally wrestle or intellectually wrestle. He physically wrestles with this man all night. And the identity of the man, is not immediately clear to us. So, in fact, Jacob asks the man what his name is, and the man never gives it. And then um, he leaves before the morning light could really reveal his identity. And there's been a lot of debate throughout the history of interpretation about who this man is. But Jacob himself says, towards the end of our passage today, that he had seen the face of God. He had seen God face to face. So, you know, whether this man was this character who appears a lot in the Old Testament called the angel of God, this really special messenger of God, or whether he was the pre-incarnate Christ or the incarnate Christ who traveled back in time to appear to Jacob or God the Father incarnate or something else entirely, I think what Jacob is clear about and what we can also be clear about, is that this man was enough of a representative of God to be considered God himself. And this is really remarkable. To this man who believes that his happiness, his success, his fulfillment are 100% up to him and his own strategies, God appears into the middle of this incredibly fractured relational situation, God appears. Into a mess completely of his own making, God appears. Into this perfectly human situation, the holy God comes. And what's more, Jacob wasn't even looking for God. He wasn't calling out to God in distress. He hadn't turned to God in repentance. God's appearing was completely unsolicited and unmerited. And, you know, the most remarkable thing, I think, about this story is that God plays Jacob's game. Jacob doesn't know how to do anything but wrestle. It's all he's done his whole life. God could have done something different, but what he did was he joined Jacob in his wrestling. He wrestled with Jacob. He gets right in there and joins him where he is. What a beautiful picture of divine grace. So as the morning begins to dawn, the man says that he can't stay much longer. Um, He had been wrestling with Jacob on his own terms the whole night, but then he kind of tipped his hat and showed the kind of strength that he really had, because with just a touch of his finger, he dislocates Jacob's hip socket. It turns out Jacob thought that he was playing on even terms with this guy, that he was an even match, but it looks like it was a little bit more like a parent playing uno with their kids until it's dinner time and it's time for the game to end, and then the parent puts down all their draw fours, right? Um, And so just before he leaves, God, who has been blessing Jacob his whole life, even though Jacob has not acknowledged it. He blesses Jacob again. How does he do this? He gives him a new name, Israel. The name Jacob can be translated deceiver. And he received it because he came out of the womb holding his brother's heel. He was, it's like he was trying to pull him back in, trying to beat him out of the womb and be the firstborn. But when the deceiver, who hasn't known anything, but wrestling for himself his whole life, when he asks God for a blessing, the blessing God gives him is a new name. The name Israel is derived from the root word that means to rule or to contend with. This is something that Jacob knows something about, right? He wrestles, he knows how to contend and and to try to rule over something. And um, sometimes this name is translated, he wrestled with God. Meaning a description of the event that happened. But most modern scholars agree that the suffix L of Israel is actually meant to be the subject, meaning that the name can be translated better as God fights for you. What a remarkably prophetic name for the man who has been determined to fight for himself. So as God appears to Jacob, he has revealed that he's fully present with him, that he's protecting him, guiding him, providing for him, fighting for him, even when Jacob can't fully see it. And that transforms Jacob. It's only then, after this encounter face-to-face with the God who fights for him, that Jacob is able to encounter his problem head-on for the first time in his life. And so he goes and he he confronts Esau. And as it turns out, much to, I think, everyone's surprise, God had been working behind the scenes all the time. So Esau, instead of killing him um, with this army of 400 people, which is how Jacob thought was going to happen, instead of that, Esau welcomes Jacob with no hostility at all. Only God could have changed his heart so dramatically. For all of Jacob's wrestling and striving, God had been fighting for him all along. And all of Jacob's schemes and and striving and fighting, it had all come to naught. But in spite of that all, in spite of it all, God had still prepared his way. So the signpost in this story is God's mercy in giving Jacob his very presence unsolicited certainly unmerited and right into the middle of that mess of his own cre- his own making Jacob experiences the transforming presence of God next the destination remember a signpost doesn't exist just to be a signpost it exists because it's pointing towards something it is promising that something is up ahead right So what is the destination towards which this sign points? It's a promise that one day God will make his dwelling among his people. I like this illustration from the Bible Project. It's actually from a video. You might've seen it. If you haven't, it's it's cool. You should check it out. Um, You see, at one time, humans did live in the presence, the unveiled presence of God. In the Garden of Eden, God's space, that blue, was one and the same with our space, completely overlapping. Heaven was on earth. They were fully united. But after the fall, God's space and our space have very different characters, just like backstage and onstage of a theater. But the Bible repeatedly promises us that when the kingdom of God fully comes, heaven will be on earth once again. And throughout scripture, we get these glimpses of this purple space where heaven and earth overlap. So later on in the Old Testament, we see another signpost of this same promise. Can anybody guess what that other signpost is? The temple. The temple was where God's people could meet with God. A place where God's presence dwelt on earth, a purple place. But it was only temporary and humans could only access the presence of God through sacrifices and purity rituals and mediators. And if we keep going along the trail throughout scripture, then we see in John 1.51, at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus references Jacob's ladder, this image that God had given to Jacob as he was fleeing Esau. And Jesus says that he himself is the ladder. He is the gate through which we can access the heavenly places, the place where God himself dwells. Jesus is the way by which we can be in God's presence. And then again, in the book of John, to put it another way, John writes that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. That word dwelling means tabernacle, the same word that's used to talk about the temple. So Jesus calls himself the temple, the place where we meet God. Jesus is the place where heaven and earth overlap. The culmination of this promise, the fulfillment of it, is Jesus himself. But Jesus died and he rose again, and here we are 2,000 years later, and heaven and earth are not yet one. The promise has been fulfilled, but we are not at our final destination. In the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of what the final destination is. This image of the Garden of Eden, which is now a city coming down to earth to a completely renewed creation. Once again, God's space and our space will completely overlap. They'll be one and the same. We'll dwell in the presence of God once again. The Holy God will make his home on the earth and we will live in his unbridled presence. That curtain that separates the backstage from the main stage, it'll be gone. There'll be one and the same. All of that guessing about what God might be up to behind the scenes of our life, all of that will be a thing of the past. And we'll be totally transformed in the face of God. We won't be tempted to wrestle and fight for our blessing like we do here on earth, like Jacob has done, because we'll witness God, we'll see him, we'll be in his presence, residing in God's presence. This is the ultimate destination to which the Bible points. This is the promise of the coming kingdom of God. So we've identified the signpost in Jacob's story and we've identified the destination to which that sign points. We know where we're heading So let's talk about how we learn to follow the trail as we journey towards that promise. There's this amazing talk by Tim Mackey, who's one of the creators of the Bible Project. I know some of you have listened to it. I'm putting the title up here because I think it's really great, and I encourage you to listen to it. And all you have to do is Google that that's up there, and you'll find it. Um, I'm going to spoil a little bit of it and tell a story that he tells in in that talk. So he says, once he was on a backpacking trip and as he was making his way up this really steep hill, I think he was climbing a volcano maybe, um, he's, he's got his head down, he's powering through, and all of a sudden he hears something rustling in the bushes and he's a little taken aback, but it turns out not to be a bear, but a woman who jumps out of the bushes and her mouth is completely full. And she says, look at these huckleberries. She said, there are huckleberries everywhere. <laughs> And so Tim turns and looks around and he notices that, sure enough, the trail is lined with these bushes that are just full of plump, ripe, purple huckleberries. And then he looks up the trail and he realizes that as far as he can see, the entire trail is lined with huckleberry bushes. And then he looks down behind him and he realizes that for the past few miles, he has been walking through this trail full of huckleberries. And so the whole rest of his backpacking trip, he was able to enjoy huckleberries at every meal, every snack, this free, wild, delicious treat that was just there waiting for him to enjoy. And you know, he didn't go on this backpacking trip looking for huckleberries. He was actually pretty content to just keep his head down, power through, and get to the summit. That's what he was looking forward to. But once he saw the huckleberries and he tasted them, his trip took on a completely different character. There was enjoyment all along the way. In some ways, I think that God's appearances to Jacob are a little bit like that woman who shouts, hey, look at these huckleberries. God is giving Jacob a glimpse, not only of what he could experience one day in heaven, but what he has to offer him right now. God is reminding Jacob that even now he's on He's at work on his behalf. He's present enough. God is present enough in Jacob's life that Jacob leaves an encounter with him physically altered. He's fighting for Jacob right now. And if Jacob just stops wrestling, there's peace and fulfillment and reconciliation to be enjoyed in God's presence. In the same way, God invites us to lift our heads up and to see and enjoy the huckleberries that are here right now. Even as we wait for the day that heaven and earth are one, God often pulls back the curtain and shows us that he is right here with us, fighting for us, even when we don't ask him to come, even when we don't expect it, even when we're in the middle of wrestling for our own blessing even when we don't lift up our head and notice him. He is right here. And just like the huckleberries, the more we learn to see them, the more we start to look for God's presence in our life, the more we're able to enjoy the gifts of the kingdom, even now. So how can we learn to see the huckleberries? Well, there are a lot of ways, but here's one. It's pretty simple. We tell God what we need. We tell God what we desire, what we long for. We ask him to show us mercy, to bless us, to fulfill us. This is called praying. And then we lift up our eyes, we slow down, and we ask God to show us how he's answering. Start really small. Here's an example. A couple weeks ago, I was running late for our rehearsal before church on Sunday morning, and it was causing me a lot of stress, and I was not focusing on leading in worship. All I was thinking about is, what is everyone going to think about me when I show up late? And, you know, coming from 64 down Parham, it's not that far, but sometimes it can take a really long time depending on the lights. (laughs) And so that morning, as I exited the interstate in a total rush, I just breezed my way all the way down Parham because right as I approached every single light, it turned green, every single one, all the way to Regency. You could say that this was just a silly coincidence. Um, You could also say that I would be selfish to ask God to help me get to church on time, even though it was my own fault that I was late. But Jacob's story says that God shows up and fights for us in the middle of messes of our own making. And so that morning, I took those green lights as a sign that God was fighting for me. And I thanked him. It was a handful of huckleberries. So here's an invitation to you this week. If you are in a parish group or a small group, or perhaps with your roommate or spouse, Make a habit of noting each time you get together, whether that's once a week or maybe once a day, a small moment of God's blessing that you've experienced, a handful of huckleberries. And, you know, ask God to show you what this experience is. Jacob reminds us that it's not up to you to find God. He'll find you. And the more we name God's mercies, the more we can practice this habit of naming God's mercies, the more we notice the huckleberries, the more we'll start to see them. We'll see that they've actually been all along behind us, and they're all ahead before us. And we'll be able to enjoy the gifts of the kingdom, even here and even now. So in this mysterious story from Jacob's life, we see a sign pointing towards the time when heaven and earth will be one. When God will make his dwelling among us and we will finally experience God's unveiled presence. When heaven and earth become one, we will once again dwell fully in God's presence. No mediator, no sacrifice, no veil, no mystery. And we have heard the promise that along the way, God wants to give us glimpses, huckleberries of his presence even now. And it's by coming face to face with the God, the living God who fights for us that we're transformed. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, you're so good to us. And just like Jacob we pray that you would come into our lives in the middle of our mess, in the middle of our very human experience, that you would show us that you are the one who fights for us. Pray, God, that you would give us the gift of tasting your kingdom, even here and even now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.